0: Hello fellow listeners, it's Mary Stone speaking to you from a very cold, snowy porch. (laughs) Literally there's snow on the floor here. I'm sitting on a warm chair with a fleece on it and I have myself pretty bundled up. (laughs) We certainly have had a big winter, which I am happy about because I know you know by now that I'm a snow lover and I've enjoyed it, um, cross-country skiing and snowshoeing. And Jolie, our new rescue from Mississippi, is turning out to be quite the snow dog, although we had to use boots a few days when it was so cold that her little feet were freezing up. Dog boots never work out too well, but at least it's some kind of a workaround. Anyway, I have a few things I'm looking forward to chatting with you about, and one of them is a special interview with three young philanthropists, which turned into a column topic about a horse rescue and sanctuary facility not far from me. But before I go on to that, I wanted to mention that I did indeed borrow The Little Prince from the library. If you recall from the last episode, there was a snippet about garden foxes and um, the fox that plays the role in the book, which I had found as I was researching it, and it inspired me to borrow the whole book. And it's been fun to read the classic children's story and learn more of the lessons beyond The Friendship of the fox. What stands out, though, is a scene labeling baobab seeds as bad seeds and the baobab trees as bad trees. Because here on Earth, it's not so. In fact, they're revered, really. But in the Little Prince story, they talk about in this one scene that all seeds are harmless when they are small, no matter what they are. That is until it grows. And once it sprouts and you recognize it, if it's a bad plant, like baobab, You must destroy it or it will take over the tiny planet and tear it apart. So, as you may know, the story of the uh, little prince involves a, just that, a little prince that is visiting planets, little planets. But baobab trees are indeed giant, but fit fine on our large planet Earth, unlike those in the little prince's travels. Here, the baobab is also called tree of life which brings a memory of learning about these ancient trees during a woody plant conference a few years back. It became a column topic titled, Baobab Trees of Life. And it starts like this. Hello, fellow readers. I'm back from the woody plant conference held at Scott Arboretum at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. It's always a treat to attend. While not nearly as knowledgeable as the scientists and arborists in attendance I have a love affair with trees, especially those that lived far longer than we have, such as the baobab tree of life. I treasure trees' long-standing stability, their quiet offering of oxygen and cleaning out our air of carbon dioxide, plus their sheer beauty. Yes, I've been known to hug more than a few. No giggling until you've tried. There's an energy about being rooted and reliant on our dear earth, we have that in common with trees. Starting off the conference was Claire Sawyers, director of the Scott Arboretum, who mentioned how essential trees like ash, oak, and spruce are all under threat of disease. She references a recent article about the demise of two to 3,000-year-old baobabs in South Africa. They're known as the tree of life, as they provide fruit even in long periods of drought, Claire said. But what she didn't say was what they were dying of, expressing deep sadness, which we all felt by the way in the crowd. The baobab tree, also known as boab or boa boa, can store 32,000 gallons of water to sustain itself through severe droughts, which occur routinely in their homeland. They can grow to 98 feet with trunks up to 36 feet wide, too huge to hug. <laughs> When leafless, their branches look like spindly roots, hence another common name of upside-down tree. On the website, there's a photo that one of my clients um, gave me when I told them I was writing this story a few years back. They had actually just visited South Africa. So indeed, when you look at the photo on the Garden Dilemma's website, there's these three trees that look like upside-down trees, just that. The roots are up in the air because they're leafless. It's very interesting. They're very, very cool because the symmetry of their trunks also is remarkably straight. Since the beginning of this century, the oldest trees of life in Africa are dying off too quickly to blame on pests or disease, experts say. I had thought perhaps they'd reach their life expectancy. Not so, as many live five to 6,000 years. Scientists have yet to pinpoint the cause, though many surmise climate change, which seems kind of curious. Indeed, there's no shortage of changes endured in two or three thousand years, including severe floods, volcanoes, and extended drought. So, wouldn't they have already survived that? It's just very interesting. So, there was more of the conference I go into details about on the Garden Dilemma's website. A few of the highlights here I'll just kind of brush through because one of the other visitors was um, this man from Wakehurst, which is Kew's Wild Botanic Garden in Sussex, England. His name was Ed. Iken and he spoke about their wild garden and all the wonderful plants that came from temperate climates. In fact, watching a slideshow was kind of like watching the uh, undersea world of Jacques Cousteau in terms of how they went about finding these plants through the rainforests. He also spoke about the Wakehurst Millennium Seed Bank and the goal of archiving 25% of the world's plant species by 2025. They're focusing on plants that provide food, education, or those that are endangered. They're saved in such a way to survive a nuclear explosion, Ed said. It's hardly pleasant to think about, accentuated by their partnership with the Doomsday Seed Bank in Norway. Then there was another uh, speaker who came from the Atlantic Botanical Garden named Scott McCahan, and he spoke about plant exploration with a purpose. And what that was about, his talk, was that they would go around and when they found isolated areas where farmers were not familiar with agricultural techniques needed for survival, they taught them some of those techniques. And some of them were very basic ones, like, for instance, they have um, propagation bags they use, and to prevent root rot, they explained that you need to put in drainage holes. So that was kind of a neat thing. Scott shared slides of food offered by villagers, like stinging ants wrapped in leaves. But they were high in protein, he said, so I guess he did try them. But he did say that he didn't participate in the petrified state of rats. They served aged rats. And that was was funny, because the talk was just before lunch, and there was a vegetarian option that seemed to gain in popularity. I'm just saying. So getting back to the lesson in The Little Prince, that involve the baobab trees. I guess when you consider it on a little planet, they would be too huge to be accommodated, and so I can suppose that removing them was a good idea before it destroyed the planet was the lesson. But maybe what it really is a lesson about is destroying resentments and hate before it tears the planet apart. And isn't that a wisdom we can surely gain from in these days? Anyway, we're going to go on to the... uh, story about the three children philanthropists. But before we do that, I'm going to go grab something warm to drink. My hands are literally frozen. Maybe you want to grab some coffee yourself or hot tea. I hope all of you are surviving okay as this crazy time is unfolding. The weather seems to have some part in it. Stay tuned for part two about a horse sanctuary and rescue. So we'll go on to the next subject about our young philanthropists. And I want to just share a little backstory on that. I had heard from my colleague, Marty Carson, who I interviewed when we spoke about the garden at the Father John's Animal House. Marty Carson was my colleague that helped uh, design the plant lineup. And of course, as I mentioned last time, is where I adopted Jolie from. Anyway, Marty was telling me about these three young people who are the children of one of my associates, as it turns out. Rachel and her husband Andrew that do garden maintenance and they do install beautiful perennial gardens. They're really extraordinarily masterful gardeners. So I asked Rachel if I could interview the children, which I did, and it became a column topic titled River's Edge Horse Rescue. Sometimes when you hear a story of kindness, it needs to be shared, especially when it involves children helping an organization in dire need of funds. Wade, Blair, and Grant of Stillwater, New Jersey, took it upon themselves to fundraise for River's Edge Horse Rescue and Sanctuary in Newton, New Jersey. I had the privilege of interviewing the young philanthropist just before the new year. Wade, age 10, explained they read an article that the horse sanctuary didn't get donations because of COVID. So we had the idea of making dog treats to make money to give to them. The family boards horses and knows what's involved with caring for them. What do you think about the horses that need to be rescued, I asked. I feel excited about giving to them and helping, Blair, age 9, said. For year old Grant piped in. You can even eat them. The dog treats, that is, made with peanut butter and sweet potatoes. I kind of laughed about that. I said, hey, did you eat them? And they said, yeah, we ate them. And they gave them to their dogs, too. The mom of the kind-hearted kids adds, I was so excited that they were excited to help out. We started baking, and Blair grabbed my phone and called my customers. You can't call a customer, she was saying, and she laughed. Within a few hours, they already raised $450. Rachel and her husband, Andrew, have been gardening associates for years. They became friends as well. And not only have they been footing the bill for all of the ingredients for these cookies, of course they're running them too, um, running them to deliver and all that good stuff, but they also gave $100 to the cause. Their goal has been to raise 1000 and indeed they've raised 800 to date, they explained. But as of late, they haven't been baking because life is getting so busy with uh, running the farm and running their business and... And then there's the homeschooling, which is a hybrid there. So Rachel was telling me how stressed out they are and how busy. I'll visit the sanctuary when the kids are back in the saddle of baking dog treats again. But for now, Diane Romano Pataki, founder of River's Edge, graciously visited by phone. The nonprofit sanctuary provides forever homes for abused, abandoned and unwanted horses. And they've been doing this since 2010. It's just two people. Diane and one other, who tend to the 28 horses each day from dawn until 9 or 10 p.m. She has five volunteers, she said, that they come when they can, but they could use more volunteers, and they often have volunteer training, but sadly people sign up and don't appear for the training. So it's a difficult thing. She said that if they were closer to New York City, they'd probably get many, many more volunteers, but certainly she appreciates all that volunteer, and, and she also appreciates any donation, because they are really running tight to the cuff, to say the least. In fact, she was telling me one of the things they need most is money for winter hay because they need 160 bales a week and it costs about $7 or $8 a bale. So that's what that's, I guess that's $1,200 a week, plus they have other expenses. So any donation is appreciated and you can find them on the org site. Diane's love and compassion over her life's work fill the rescue stories, though the conditions where the horses come from is hard to hear about. One rescue came as a desperate call from the New York State Attorney General's office, who tracked them down as no local rescue stepped in on an abandoned horse left to feed off of weeds. She traveled to Binghamton, New York, which is not close at all. In fact, it's, I think, many hours away. And she brought her water tank on her truck to... uh, Go look at this horse. And when she was telling the story, she said, You cannot unsee what you see, because she had asked to see photos of this horse. So she had to go. It was her mission. He was skin and bones and fought so hard to live. But he died after only five months. But at least he was loved and cared for for those months, Diane said. It troubles her that there's no laws here that protect horses and dreams of being part of an initiative to create one. Maybe call it Buddy's Law, so that no other horse will have the same fate. I asked Diane what inspired her life's work. Being an injured soul myself, she said, not for sympathy, but went on to tell the story of how she brought home half-dead things to her mom when she was a girl. We shared some other mom stories. My mom was a horse person as well, and I shared the story that I didn't know know this as a child, but that I had been bitten by my mom's horse, Jack, and that that may have translated to my fear of dogs, which I've since overcome, as you know. It's inspiring to speak with three youngsters taking the initiative to help and a grown-up kid who follows her heart. It's not been easy, but anything worthwhile is not easy, Diane explained. To see the horses and their manes and tails running free, you just have to be here to experience it. And Diane does invite people to do just that. You just have to call in advance to make a time to go visit. And she invites special needs children um, very wholeheartedly. She enjoys the therapeutic aspects of horses. How inspiring to listen to the story of these three young philanthropists. I think to me the most remarkable part was that they took it upon themselves. It wasn't something that Rachel and Andrew had initiated as an idea. So that is very cool. And if we all just did that, just kind of step up to the plate and do something little, something little that grows into something big. Because when you think about it, it's not only helping those horses. The horses then help the visitors. Many of them that come there are special needs, not all of them, it's not a special sanctuary for that sort of thing, but certainly there's Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts that do things there and other community members, so it's passing it forward, isn't it? Something we can learn from. So I have to tie in the story of the horse sanctuary with something gardeny. and one thing that comes to mind is the use of horse manure or cow manure, both of which can be very effective fertilizers nitrogen-rich, but neither of those can be used when they're fresh from the cow or horse. You need to have it composted, which is a simple thing, like your compost pile is a fairly simple thing, and it takes typically about two or three months to compost manure. Once it doesn't smell like manure anymore, it's pretty much ready to use, and you can use it just as you would compost around your garden plants as a natural, beautiful fertilizer from our dear horse and cow friends. So thanks for coming by and visiting with me on the screen porch. I look forward to our next chat. And please, if you haven't done so already, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast. And if you're enjoying it, share it with your friends that you think may enjoy it as well. Thank you so much. Stay warm. Spring is coming. Spring of new beginnings is something joyful to think about. And when you think of the new seeds that we'll be planting, you can think of the little prince story and certainly getting rid of bad seeds. But really what we are thinking about is getting rid of resentments and learning to grow in kindness. Thanks so much. You can follow Garden Dilemmas on Facebook or online at gardendilemmas.com and on Instagram at hashtag Mary Elaine Stone. Garden Dilemmas, Delights and Discoveries is produced by Alex Bartling. Thanks for coming by. I look forward to chatting again from my screen porch. And always remember to embrace the unexpected in this garden of life. Have a great day.